15 and a multitude of choices. So I will direct you as we move through that. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I, in turn, had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Verse 12, the resurrection of the dead. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. At verse 35, the resurrection body. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is, imper is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. And verse 54, when this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that text was filled with a lot of esoteric language, so we're going to unpack it a little bit. Um, and isn't it interesting when Paul calls the recipients of his letter fools? I can't imagine that going over too well. But nonetheless, uh, today we conclude our series on the Apostles' Creed. We've been walking through it line by line, one line at a time, for the last um, seven weeks. And as we've been looking at the essential sort of beliefs of what Christians believe, we're, we're also seeing how these, um, that these truth claims answer deep questions that all human beings ask, such as, why am I here? What happens uh, after I die? Um, where do I belong? 
wrong. These sorts of questions are addressed in um, our understanding of the Apostles' Creed. And so today we conclude the series with uh, the last line, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So these two concepts we're gonna try to unpack and try to understand a little bit better. What exactly are they saying? And what are they an answer to? And I wanna start with the latter. And the question that this claim answers is a question that we all ask ourselves from one time at one time or another, right? And the question is what happens when we die? I remember when I was a teenager, a young teenager, when I first had that realization that, oh my goodness, at some point, um, this body is going to cease to exist and I'm, and I'm going to die. I was a young Catholic boy at the time and, and so I, I thought, well, I'm definitely going to purgatory. Um, you know, so that's just what I thought as a young teenager. But that, that question came to my mind when I was a young kid. Uh, I remember when my grandmother and my grandfather died uh, also when I was a young kid and I believe they were in heaven and uh, I still believe that and but I also believed as a kid that from heaven they were watching my every move and so uh, with eyes on me at all times I was um, much less inclined to steal the cookies from the cookie jar if grandma and grandpa are watching me from upstairs. But these are questions that we, we wrestle with. I've presided um, in over 30 funerals in my career so far, and every time it's a question that we seek to answer. Will I get to see my loved one again? What happens uh, after this is over? Is there something in me that continues after I die? It's interesting that we, when we look at human history and we look way back as far as we can, the earliest intentional burials, human burials, paleontologists have discovered are about between 90 and 110,000 years old. The earliest of these intentional burials that we can be sure were intentional burial, burials were found in all places in the Holy Land. Uh, on, on the side of, the, of Mount Carmel, there's one set of caves called the Skule Caves. And in these caves, there's evidence of intentional burials. And then this cave, these caves that you see here are called the Kafsa Caves. These were actually found in Nazareth, of all places, where Jesus grew up. And in the Kafsa Cave, it's a network of caves caves, paleontologists have found fragments of human remains and actually one entire skeleton that appears to be between 90 and 110,000 years old. What's interesting about this to me is that it's not just that people were buried there, but that they had ancient um, burial practices and customs and traditions that went along with the burial. 100,000 years ago may have been before the advent of language as we know it, before the advent of music as we know it, certainly long, long, long time before the, uh, the Hebrews as, as we know them, um, and, and yet they were burying their dead with certain rituals. Um, even the, there were pigments that were found. So the color okra was found in the Kafsa cave, indicating that perhaps the body had been um, covered in, in okra uh, in, in that pigment. There's antlers next to what, what they believe was um, the, the, the remains of a boy. Um, all sorts of things. There were seashells found scattered all throughout the Kafsa cave with holes 
in, in the seashells as, as though they were using them for commerce and perhaps jewelry. We can't really be sure of that, but uh, it looks as though they say that around 100,000 years ago, around the time of the Neanderthals, the earliest human beings, Homo sapiens at that time, were burying their dead loved ones and had traditional um, practices that included um, in, including items and tools and symbols probably because they believed that they would need them in the afterlife. The point I'm trying to make is that it is innately human to imagine that there is more than what we are experiencing in this life. As long as we've known humans have walked this face of this earth, we know that they've been imagining life beyond this life. The Hebrews in the Old Testament, they had uh, a concept called the, of the realm. They believed in a realm of the dead, and it was called Sheol. Uh, Sheol was the underworld. God lived up in the heavens, and when you die, you would go, you're placed into the ground, your body was placed in the ground, and your souls would go to the realm of the dead known as Sheol. And we became spirits there, in essence, and continued to exist. But the Israelites in the Old Testament, they didn't really talk about it that much. They were much more concerned with what happens in this life than what happens after this life. But there are a few references um, in the Old Testament, including one where a witch conjures up uh, one of the dead Israelites to seek advice about something, and that's the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel 28. There are a few more references as you get closer to the Old Testament. But then what really happens is that um, the, in, in the intertestamental period is when the Israelites really start to dive in and theologize about what happens after we die. The intertestamental period is about the 400-year period that um, went from the time of Malachi and the ministry of Malachi up until John the Baptist. And during that time, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, developed a more, much more robust concept of the afterlife and what happens um, when we die. And so let me just show you on a chart what it looks like. As, as it, and this is, this is um, present in the time of Jesus, and we'll see that, how this is reflected underneath what we read in the New Testament. So when you die, you enter uh, the realm of the dead known as Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek. And there are two places uh, in the realm of the dead separated by a big gulf. There should be a line or a gulf there between paradise and Tartarus. Um, Paradise, of course, is for the righteous dead. And Tartarus or Gehenna is the place for the evil or the unrighteous. This was a place that you would go for a certain period of time. It was temporary um, until the general resurrection or what's called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. The word paradise is a Persian word that means the king's gardens. And if you remember the ancient um, Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians, the king had a massive palace. And beyond that palace was an incredible garden um, with water features and exotic plants and exotic animals. And one of the best things you could ever dream of would be to have an invitation from the king to go and walk with the king in the king's garden. That would be a, a magi- the, the majesty of that and the, uh, the honor that that would be. Um, and so that's where paradise comes from, that image of the king's garden. And of course, we read about that in Genesis chapter 1 when Adam and Eve are walking with the king of the universe in paradise in the garden. 
right, in the cool of evening. So you see this in Jesus when he's hanging on the cross, and the person on the cross next to Jesus says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is another way of saying, Jesus, I know who you are. I know that, that you are being unjustly executed and you're going to your kingdom, you're going to paradise, and I'm being justly executed. I'm probably gonna end up in Gehenna or Tartarus, but, but maybe if you would remember me and advocate for me, may, maybe I, I, could, I could join you in, in your kingdom. Would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And how does Jesus respond? Today, you will be with me in Paradise, yes, in paradise. Wow, okay, so Adam and Eve in the king's garden, the garden of Eden, the king of the universe, paradise is restored. Okay, then there's Gehenna, the place for the unrighteous, and you see the gulf between these two realms when you read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. They both die, and Lazarus goes to paradise where he rests in Abraham's bosom and the rich man goes to Gehenna and there's this great gulf between the two and you can read about that in that parable. And so all of this is underlying what you hear in the New Testament as you read the New Testament and then the thought was, you didn't stay there forever, right? You stayed there until the resurrection, until the day of the Lord and the final judgment day. And so Jesus talks about the Son of Man returning with his holy angels and the dead being raised for judgment. So all the dead are raised for judgment. And at that point, um, according to the ancient Hebrews, the, liberated, um, the righteous are liberated from the lower realms and, and they ascend to heaven and the unrighteous remain in the lower realms. Of course, the question is, well, what is good enough and how do you get there, right? The concept of hell is a troubling concept um, for, for many people, many um, uh, even Christians and pastor friends I, that I have um, don't believe in hell. And people ask me from time to time, do you believe in hell? And, and I actually do believe in some kind of hell, uh, though um, here's what I think about it. It seems to me that God has always given us a choice, that we always have a choice, even to the end and perhaps even into the afterlife, he gives us a choice. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray that God's will on earth would be done as it is in heaven, which gives us the indication that what happens in heaven is God's will. And heaven is the reality where God's will is always done. The fruit of the Spirit is always on display. We are kind and compassionate towards one another. There's no more wars or power mongers in, in certain places. There's no disease or pandemics or anything like that. That is what heaven looks like, right? No more suffering or refugee crisis or war. No more disease or wildfires. But there's always the possibility I would suppose in order for love to exist, there's always the possibility that I, I wouldn't want to live that way or I wouldn't want that kind of a life. I personally don't know anybody if presented these options in their full revelation and aware of their own wounds that has contributed to their life would ever choose uh, hell, but the choice has to be there. I think, I think the choice remains. The possibility that I might want it to be all about me. Um, 
and that I wouldn't want to practice kindness. After all, if I had lived for 70 years not practicing kindness, why would I want to be any different? So the possibility, in my estimation, remains. Um, and which, by the way, is an, is an important question that Jesus asks to a paralytic and to each one of us. Do you want to be made well? And so we, there's a sense in which we, we have to say, yes, I, I want to be made well. I want to be whole. I want to be with you. I like C.S. Lewis's image uh, when he wrote that hell is the one place where the doors are locked from the inside. In other words, um, nobody who doesn't want to be there is there. A anybody can leave. It's your choice, right? So um, if there is a hell, it's not that God sends you there. But that's enough about hell. I'm going to give it about as much attention as the Bible gives it. Um, because the Bible is much less interested in scaring people out of hell as it is in inviting people into heaven. Um, that's Jesus' intention. And what we're saying when Christians affirm our faith in everlasting life, what we're saying is that we get to dwell in God's place, in God's realm. And so Jesus said, I have gone to prepare a place for you. And you will be with me where I am. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. And so part of what Christians affirm when we say we believe in everlasting life, um, it comes actually from Jesus himself, right? So as human beings, we've wondered for hundreds of thousands of years, is there something that happens to us when we die? Is there part of me that continues? And as Christians, we understand that God, part of God's answer to that question is in Jesus, and so it was in Jesus' death and resurrection that therefore we find ours. Um, and, and that that was God's definitive answer to our question about life beyond death. And so the, so the answer to the question, is there something after death, of course, is rooted and grounded in Easter. We're Easter people. You're getting kind of an Easter sermon right before Lent. Then you'll get another Easter sermon on Easter. But it will be different. Um, so this is what Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, and even though they die, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And so this is what Christians believe, but it's not just pie in the sky. Um, I'm dreaming about heaven so much that I am of no earthly good. Uh, it, in, it is, in fact, our vision of heaven that determines and shapes how we face life here on earth. It's, it, it's, it gives us a sense of confidence and, um, and hope in the midst of adversity. And this life is actually just preparing us for the next one. Uh, so we're to learn everything we can here. We're to do everything we can to prepare ourselves in the earthly kingdom for God's heavenly kingdom. That's why we practice living God's way here in this life. And every day is meant to be savored as a gift, but it's not the end. I love how C.S. Lewis describes our life. He says your life on this earth is basically the title page and the preface to the great adventure that God has in store for you. I think that's a hopeful and positive image. So let me just return briefly to the phrase uh, the resurrection of the body. So we talked about life everlasting and the promise of life everlasting, but what is this resurrection of the body business? We have this picture um, when, when we imagine dying, we, we tend to think that our bodies go into the ground and our souls, you know, or spirits go 
somewhere else or heaven or something. And then we get a new body there. But the creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the body, not just a completely new and different one. The, how does that work, right? And Paul kind of addresses that a little bit in, in the text. Um, is God going to take our bodies and reconstitute them? How does this actually work at like a biological level? So I did a little bit of morbid research um, over the past week to try to learn a little bit about the decomposition process of, our, of the human body. And there's a, actually a place in Texas where um, they do research on um, the decomposition of human bodies. There are bodies that are out in the open and they're surrounded by fences so that the animals can't get in and they study and research research these bodies as they decompose and what they discovered is that it takes about a year for the body to completely decompose. Did you know that your body is meant to be recycled? It is, seriously. Within minutes of when you die, the decomposition begins. There are microbes that begin to change you into something else to convert the energy in your body into another form of energy which ultimately begins feeding the plant life, which is then eaten by animals, which is then uh, converted at death to more microbes and plant life and death, and this is how it works at a biological level. Anybody hungry, by the way? Um, and they say, again, it takes about a year for this to happen. And the people in Jesus' day understood this too. So in Jesus' day, when somebody died, they would take the body and they would first wash the body and then they would put perfume and ointment on the body to deal with the odor. Um, and then they would wrap the body in bands of cloth and they would place this body in a tomb, which was a cave. Uh, and that cave was covered, but it wasn't airtight. And in about one or two years, they would go back into the tomb and collect the bones and clean the bones off and put it in a bone box called an ossuary because they couldn't afford more than one tomb for every family member. So they knew that the body would decompose and they would put the bones in the bone box and keep the bone box or bury the bone box. And of course, if you put actually bones in acidic soil, even the bones will decompose as well. So what's the point of all of this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> people, people didn't, essentially people didn't expect uh, their bodies to be resurrected as exactly the way that they knew them. They knew they were going to decompose. So what are we talking about when we talk about the resurrection of the body? I'm grateful to have a mostly healthy body, but I'd rather not have one where your hair falls out and you get wrinkles and back problems. And so what, what age will, will our resurrected bodies be? 23? That might be nice. And then what about my grandparents who I knew when they were in their 70s? If they, if they get their bodies when they were in their 20s, will I recognize them? And oh my goodness, what if I can't recognize my grandparents and all of these things that we sort of pontificate over and fear um, sometimes. But when we look at the overall picture in the Bible, what we see is that there is some continuity between the bodies that we knew and the new bodies that we will get that you will actually have some kind of a body, that somehow it will be recognizable to the people that you know and love. And this body will be able to feel and touch and taste and smell. Um, I love the idea that the resurrected Christ, Jesus, had breakfast. He ate food. So, so, so we're not disembodied spirits. He, 
he ate breakfast. Well, of course, I love that because that just means we're going to have a lot of food um, in heaven. And one of the metaphors uh, of, that the New Testament uses, because that's the best we can do is just give metaphors, is a great banquet, a wedding banquet. And there's celebration and singing and dancing and energy and hope and optimism and food and more food and more food and you don't gain any weight. That sounds amazing. So our bodies are, are basically like software um, where our DNA is made up of a code and scientists can now isolate the code. Your DNA code is millions of lines long and it's extremely complicated and God wrote the code and he stores the code in his memory banks. Uh, the early, do you think that God needs a fragment of a bone to do something? No, he wrote the code that made the bone, you know. So the earliest Christians were burned at Nero's stakes to entertain Nero's dinner guests. Do you think their bodies were not resurrected? Do you think they were not resurrected? Of course they were. So what does the new body look like then? When we think about this, the best we can do is to look at Jesus when we look at Jesus' resurrection, we see that his body came out of the tomb so that we have some kind of evidence of the empty tomb of his resurrection. But we also know that uh, he, he wasn't exactly the way he was because Mary Magdalene, the first person to visit the empty tomb, when she saw him, she thought he was the gardener. And she didn't recognize him until Jesus, the good shepherd, called her by name and she recognized his voice because the sheep recognized the voice of the shepherd but also the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus when they saw Jesus they thought he was the strange he was a stranger we know that he had the ability to eat he had scars from his crucifixion and they were present on his hands and his side he was uh, flesh and so they could touch him but he was also able to show up in a room where there were doors locked and he didn't need the king, a key. He was here and he was there. Um, these all may be pieces of a puzzle that will be resolved um, in due time regarding our life in heaven and what it might be like. But here's what we can find assurance in. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, we will be known as we are known. And so that means that your grandkids and your great-grandkids, your children, your grandparents, your loved ones, you will be known as you are known. Um, and that also, I guess, gives some motivation to, to love. We want to be known as people who loved. Paul answers um, this question the best he can in our text in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll close this in a sec. He says, a rotting body is put into the ground, but what is raised won't ever decay. It's degraded when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in glory. It's weak when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in power. It's a physical body when it's put into the ground, but it's raised as a spiritual body. And when the rotting body has been clothed in what can't decay and the dying body has been clothed in what can't die, then this statement in scripture will happen. Death has been swallowed up by victory, quoting Isaiah. What I love about the idea of the resurrection of the body is that we will not be disembodied spirits. It means that the physicality of this world matters. We will have a glorious body 
not subject to disease, but touching, feeling, seeing, sensing, drinking, eating, experiencing a glorious body um, by which those of us who have known us will know us. I love the idea of the afterlife as paradise, walking and living in the king's garden with the king of the universe. I love the idea that death and how we think about death has been swallowed up in victory so that it's lost its sting and therefore in the face of death we do not need to fear. I love the fact that, uh, that the worst thing isn't the last thing and that how we think about our life in heaven shapes how we live today. It gives us courage and boldness and strength. And it's not just that I believe these things, but I'm counting on them. I'm counting on them to be true. About six or so years ago, um, uh, the church that I was serving in the Seattle area, our preschool director, she had eight children. Four of them were adopted, and her son, David, was 18 years old, and he had struggled for several years with severe uh, narcotic addiction and homelessness and mental illness, and, and uh, he was on the road to recovery. I was visiting him, um, spending time with him and his mom, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, we, we lost him to an overdose of opioids. And I learned about this when Marla called me on the phone, um, sobbing and crying and telling me that she lost David and, um, and, and, and I immediately, you know, said how sorry I was and surprised by this. And, uh, and she, said, she said this to me, and I, this is the whole point. She said, the only thing that's holding me together right now is that I believe in the resurrection and life eternal. And I know David did too. That's the only thing that's holding me together. What you believe matters. What you believe matters. What you trust in. What you're counting on. And the gospel is God's answer to the human condition. God's response to the questions we ask. And all that God asks is that we would open our hearts and say, yes, I trust you and I hope in that future. So as we uh, conclude our time in uh, the Apostles' Creed, I invite you to not only believe that these things are true, but I invite you to count on them, count on them being true. This is our defining story. It shapes our worldview, it shapes our whole life. It is our organizing principle. Let's join together in prayer. God, we. We thank you for uh, this promise. We don't know how we would go through the loss of loved ones, and today especially we are thinking about Claire Hadley and Rhonda and Dan and the loss of Vivian. Each of us in this room have lost people that we love so much, and each of us in this room will lose our own lives as well. This is the reality. God, we we pray that you will uh, give us the imagination to see our lives as a preface to a great adventure. We pray that you will comfort us in knowing that uh, people we loved and have lost are with you. And we pray that you would uh, give us the eyes to, to fix on, on Jesus, who is not only the author and perfecter of our faith, 
our Lord, our Savior, our example, and even our friend. And so uh, give us an eternal perspective for our days here on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.